Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, Simon, there's no question about what's been dominating the news this week. It is the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We are recording this on Friday lunchtime, and it's quite a fast-moving situation. Obviously, you know, reports from the front are, are still not clear about exactly how this is going to go, how it's going to pan out. Uh, but the markets have reacted, and interestingly, they've reacted in a way that uh, I think is consistent with some past experience. But let's talk it through but emphasising the fact that this is, a, as I said, a fast-moving situation. And so what we're saying today at a Friday lunchtime may not still hold to the same extent uh, over the weekend. But first of all, let's just talk about what has actually happened in the market and, and in particular how that has affected the investment trust sector. So to cover off the numbers so far this week, and obviously it's the first four days of the week, the investment company sector is down 4.9 percent. And that compares with a decline of 4.1% for the wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share. In terms of the sector average discount, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, we've seen that widen out. It started about 4.7% at the start of the week. And certainly by the close of Thursday, that had gone to 7.8%. And just to compare that with last year, something the average discount, sector average discount, was about 3, 3.1% last year. So we have seen a steadily derating of the wider investment company sector. Um, but look, clearly the market's worst fears have been realised this week. I mean, a full-blown invasion of Ukraine, though you know some people were talking about it, I suspect a lot of people clearly hoped that would not come to pass. And really the market's attention is, you know, what does this mean? And I think we can easily recognise the first order effects and, and the oil price uh, has gone up markedly. Uh, the shirts are kind of flirting with $100 a barrel. A lot of talk about the wheat price and that's also gone up on 30% apparently of the world's wheat that comes from Russia and Ukraine together. Um, and also a lot of talk about financial sanctions and what does it mean? I mean, clearly, all things considered, it's bad news for inflation. We've talked a lot about inflation, and this would clearly to be uh, another step up the inflation curve. However, that said, catching up with market strategists and, and investment managers this week, some very interesting comments coming out. So the JP Morgan strategists, for example, they made the case that actually the central banks would now, because of this development, would be more inclined to uh, be reticent in terms of their hiking, so slower to hike, and very much trying to ensure that economic growth or the economic recovery was not derailed. Um, I've talked to other investment managers. I mean, one commented to me that, and this is a pretty much direct quote, unlikely that this crisis will have a significant impact on global risk asset pricing. So this idea that actually, although clearly uncertainty is not great, and markets really don't like that, that essentially it's not in the long term bad news for uh, equity prices. But then also we caught up with uh, Sebastian Lyon and Charlotte Young of uh, Troy Asset Management. They're responsible for the Personal Assets Trust. And they've been raising cash. They have been raising cash through 2021. Uh, and so they've got, as they put it, a lot of dry powder at the moment. Uh, and they're quite happy to have that. I don't think they're ready at this moment in time to deploy that. But given the increase in geopolitical risk, they feel that certainly their balance sheet gives them a few good options. But also made the point when asked about, is this a kind of 1970s situation again? And, and obviously with reference to the oil crisis at that stage, that, that certainly Sebastian's view was that it was not the same. Um, that oil is actually less important in this day and age than it was at that time. But clearly not good news for not just investors, but, but for the world. 
Yes, it's obviously a tragedy uh, for the people of Ukraine. And as I say, we don't know what the outcome is be. But the markets have reacted in a fairly typical way, I think. You know, they call the old adage, which is uh, sell on the prospect and buy on the news. I mean, what we've seen over the last, certainly over the last 48 hours, is the initial reaction when the news you know, was confirmed on Thursday morning was that there were some quite significant moves. Uh, uh, in particular, you know, a lot of dispersion in the way that uh, both uh, individual stocks and investment trusts moved. So we saw some big moves. You know, the Russian investment trust, not surprisingly, fell very sharply, more than 20% on uh, Thursday initially. But then later on in the day, and obviously we saw bond yields came down a little bit and uh, stocks sold off. Uh, but then at the end of the day, when the American market closed, there had actually been something of recovery. And that seems to have continued into Friday morning. And I guess what we can learn from history is that uh, the uh, financial markets are pretty quick to kind of rate these uh, developments, even though it was unexpected by some. Clearly, the markets uh, have had some uh, expectation that this was a possibility. Not everybody believed it, of course. But it's clear that this has been something that uh, Mr. Putin's planned for some time now. Uh, It's clear from what's happened that that always was his intention. But uh, the question then is, well, what is the significance, as you say, for global risk assets? And here, it's, uh, it's rather more mixed. And it's interesting to see what has happened again, you know, yesterday and today. We've actually seen a lot of these growth investment trusts that uh, have been selling off quite significantly on the basis of fears about higher bond yields and higher inflation. Uh, they've actually come bouncing back quite strongly. And it's been other types of stocks that have actually sold off. So uh, what's your uh, take on how some of these intra-sector moves that we've seen so far? Yeah, no, you're right. There's been a lot of volatility. Things have moved around. It's quite difficult. It's one of those moments in time. And again, talking to another investment manager in terms of what they were intended to do, they were quite happy to sit on their hands and that they believe that actually a degree of inertia, certainly initially, to see where things were shaping up was probably no bad idea. And it's, you know, some people absolutely take that view, happy just to withdraw to the sidelines and uh, just really get a good sense of which way things are going. And then others clearly quite happy to get involved and take advantage of what they see as disconnects in pricing. But I would caution that sometimes when you see these quite strong share price movements, particularly for investment companies, there might not necessarily be a lot of volume behind it, particularly at these moments of uh, an extreme volatility. And so we're going to talk today about a number of investment companies and talk about their premiums or discounts or whatever they may be. But these are all based on a a snapshot at the end of trade on, on Thursday. And frankly, even as we speak at this precise moment in time, they might have moved on a pace. So just to always be cautious of that, that you know, pricing can be quite fleeting at this stage. Yes, I think that the other point I would make is that obviously, if you are a professional investor, you need to take a judgment about, in this particular instance, you know, how long this is going to last and how quickly is it going to be over, depending on what outcome you think is the most likely one. But one has to assume that probably it's most likely that the Russians will succeed in at least most of their objectives in the short term. You'd have to believe that, but it's not certain by any means, of course. And then the, the question is, what are the kind of medium term implications? Well, there obviously will be some, but it may be uh, rather too early to be sure about what the impact on inflation is, what the impact on the way that uh, energy markets and energy policy is changed. You know, the reliance on Russian gas has obviously given Putin quite a strong hand to play in Europe, at least. Uh, and of course, we don't know what the political fallout in America is going to be from this as the uh, primary mover in NATO. So there's a lot of things up in the air. And as you say, it may be the old adage was, you know, if you're going to panic, panic early and then sit on your hands, or you can just say this is going to uh, settle down and we'll have a, a chance to see more clearly 
what the impact's going to be just on not just on individual stocks and individual trusts, but also on primarily the way that the central banks are now going to react to the fact that we've had this development. Will they change the path on which they are set? So uh, with that in mind, let's move on and talk about some of the news. There's been quite a lot of news this week, and we're going to have to uh, race through it. Uh, Not all of it will be directly affected by what's happened, of course, in the last uh, 48 hours. So let's kick off with some corporate activity and uh, Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, ticker J-E-F-I. We mentioned that they had some plans to change their uh, redemption facility proposals. But what's happened uh, in this particular instance? Yeah, so again, an interesting development, this one. They've announced this week that the general meeting that was scheduled for the 10th of March has been adjourned indefinitely. And just to remind people, that meeting was to propose an amendment to the terms of their redemption facility. So essentially, when this was launched, they had an annual redemption facility for up to 100% of shareholders holding. So basically a full liquidity of event once a year. The proposal was that that be moved to a triennial uh, events every three years and reduced down to 20%. However, obviously now having received some shareholder feedback, that hasn't gone down too well. And the board now considers that the support is not sufficiently broad enough to allow it to recommend that the proposals be implemented. So as a result, the board is reviewing further options and doesn't consider it appropriate to make a recommendation on continuation of the fund until this process is complete. So I should say there was going to be a continuation vote at that uh, general meeting. So there will be a further update ahead of the AGM on the 28th of March. So we'll find out in about the next month or so uh, exactly what's going to happen. I mean, Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income did have exposure to Russia. It was certainly done at the end of January. It was about 7.5% of the investment portfolio. Uh, and unsurprisingly, it has seen a bit of volatility this week. But its size is clearly an issue for this fund. I've got it on a market cap of about £56 million and trading, or certainly at the end of Thursday at least, trading on a discount of about 13%. And what do you think is the feature of the uh, proposals that uh, the investors didn't like? We did uh, moot that possibility, I think, when we discussed this originally, that it had sort of put back into the future the uh, possibility that the fund might have to be uh, effectively wound up if the shareholders decided not to continue with the mandate that they have at the moment. Yes, we did kind of highlight that this could be an issue. I mean, essentially, the board, and for good and clear reasons, uh, were looking to kind of move the goalposts here. And they were doing so on the basis that the fund had become small, possibly too small, certainly suboptimal. But at the same time, the reason why that annual redemption facility was introduced at the outset of this fund was to alleviate the discount risk. And uh, unfortunately, this fund has been derated. It's traded on a an average discount of 7% over the previous 12 months, but now finds itself on a 12, 13% discount. And for many shareholders, clearly they would, one would assume, be unhappy about that as, as an outcome. So I think they've clearly fed that back to the board. You know, one shareholder I talked to about this was of the view that they would be more minded to be supportive if they'd allowed this full annual redemption event for 2022 and then thereafter look to do something with the mechanism rather than just say, actually, you know, it's going to be three years before you get a chance for another liquidity event. But look, you know, they will clearly be taking soundings from from shareholders. There are a number of wealth managers on the register of this fund. Uh, And I think for them, the the size is absolutely going to be of huge importance. I mean, the the liquidity of these shares in the secondary market um, is clearly going to be reflected with the fact that, as I say, its size now is less than £60 million. And perhaps you could just remind us what the performance of this particular trust has been and uh, why shareholders might be, uh, shall we say, interested in what the redemption opportunities or possible continuation, why that might be an issue. 
Yeah, so I've got it on my screen on NAV total return numbers. I've got over three years uh, for this particular fund. I've got it up 25%. And actually, that represents an outperformance of the MSCI Emerging Markets uh, Index. That's up 15%. And it's ahead of the MSCI Frontier Markets Index as well, which is up 21%. So certainly that three-year track record is pretty decent. It's worth noting that the JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Fund which certainly we put in the same subsector, that's slightly ahead of it. That's up 27% over that three-year period. And certainly the JP Morgan Fund is a larger fund. It's got a market cap of over £400 million. But in terms of the yield that the Jupiter Fund offers on a historic basis, it's about 5%. So, uh, I mean, for a a yield for an equity income mandate, that's reasonably decent and compares with 3.8% for the, the JP Morgan Fund. But I think it's size that's the key issue here. Okay, well, that's one to watch, see whether that, uh, what the prospects of that one are as as the weeks unfold, up to the next uh, announcement. Let's talk about supermarket income REIT, ticker SUPR, which has been a very successful addition to the uh, London market. What have they had to say this week? Yeah, well, this is kind of confirmation of something that we'd actually noted a month or two back. And basically, the board has received confirmation from the FCA that the investment company is eligible for admission to the premium segment of the official list. Uh, So at the moment, it trades on the specialist fund segment of the London Stock Exchange's main market, but it's looking to make this move. So they had told the market that this was likely to happen, and that's expected to occur. Sorry, I beg your pardon. It's actually happened. It happened on Wednesday. So that move has already taken effect. And what that means is it now means that supermarket income rate can be considered as part of the FTSE UK index series. And that's likely to happen at the quarterly review in June, which is actually the annual review as well. So assuming that liquidity measure and certainly some size point of view, they're, they're absolutely large enough, then the supermarket income rate would go into the, the all share at that time. Why does that make a difference? Well, because of index buyers and passive investment strategies in general, you can normally expect to see about 6 to 7% of the share capital register end up in the hand of those kind of strategies. So there'll be um, quite a lot of demand coming down the track for the shares of this fund. Indeed. But historically, of course, the market is quite good at anticipating this kind of moves. But it, let's just remind ourselves about the, the size of the trust. I mean, it will certainly qualify for the all share. Will it actually potentially qualify for the mid-cap range or not? It's quite a substantial beast, I think. And uh, remind us also about the discount or rather the premium, which the one has been trading. It's certainly uh, been very popular, has it not? You're right. It has been popular. I've got it on a premium rating of about 11% or so. And that's brought in line with its average over the previous 12 months. So, yeah, this one has proven popular. In terms of the size, as you say, I mean, it's a decent size. Uh, I mean, I've got its market cap on my screen of about 1.2 billion at the moment. So that is a pretty healthy size. Uh, And in terms of how large do you have to be to get into the mid cap, then probably somewhere in the region, I would say, of about 700 to 750 million pounds or so at the moment. So on that basis, at least, and liquidity is the other important element of this, but from a size point of view, it would look uh, likely to be going into the mid cap at that uh, quarterly review in June. And despite the fact that it trades at this premium, supermarket income is still uh, offering a a pretty decent yield of around 5%, I think. What has its actual performance been uh, since it came to the market? Well, certainly I've got the numbers here in front of me for over the last three years. So I've got the NAV total return over that three-year period up 36%, and it's broadly the same in share price terms. So again, that would compare with, I mean, we put it in a kind of UK commercial specialist type peer group, clearly is quite a unique vehicle. 
but it would compare reasonably favourably with something like an urban logistics REIT, probably a little bit behind something like a warehouse REIT or even the Tritax Big Box, which has also done very well over the last three years. Okay, so that's been a success. Let's look at uh, some fundraising news. Um, We're going to kick off with GCP Asset-Backed Income, a rather different specialist investment trust, a ticker GABI. And what have they uh, had to say by way of an update of some recent news? So this is a slightly odd one. So basically, GCP Asset-Backed Income has assets in a co-living group. And the idea was that those three assets would be transferred out to a new vehicle, GCP Co-Living REIT, uh, which would be launched and managed by, perhaps as the name would suggest, Gravis Capital Management, so i.e. GCP. However, the announcement has come this week that the active marketing of the IPO at GCP Co-Living REIT has been paused. GCP asset-backed income have said, look, the assets continue to perform well and remain highly marketable. But in terms of that new potential launch, and I think they were looking to raise up to about £300 million. It was going to be managed by a chap called Nick Barker, who previously had run the GCP Student Living Fund, uh, which we talked about quite a lot last year. Uh, But that's all on pause. But essentially, the assets continue to perform. So just remind us about this one. This is a specialist debt trust. So you know, how did the market take this news? So the share price of GCP asset-backed income has moved between, on an intraday trading basis, between about 100p and 98p this week. As we've already mentioned, it has been quite a volatile week for most investment companies. So it's hard to discern that there's been a measurable impact from this development. But this one is still trading at around, is it still trading around its initial issue price and uh, offering a, a quite a decent yield, I would imagine? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got it at 99.6p on my screen at the moment and a yield on a historic basis, not too far up, about 6.4%. Okay. We'll move on and talk about Polar Capital Global Financials Trust, ticker PCFT, uh, which we've mentioned a number of times recently as having successfully raised more money and come back from the uh, near-death experience a couple of years ago during the pandemic uh, to uh, being now much in demand and growing very rapidly. What have they had to say? Yeah, and and all those comments are absolutely spot on. So they basically announced earlier in the week that they were looking to uh, raise some additional capital. That was a reflection of the fact that uh, there was additional shareholder appetite and they've certainly got the ability to issue new shares. And they made it clear that this would be done on Thursday, so being the 24th of February and at NAV plus 1.5% premium. Now, I've got to be honest, I did think that that would turn out to be quite a a tricky ask, given that that was effectively the day when the market kind of woke up to the Russian invasion. Trying to raise any kind of money on that day would be quite tricky. But they have announced just on Friday lunchtime that they were successful in raising gross proceeds of £16.6 million. So uh, clearly quite successful, despite the, the volatile market conditions. Right. And so obviously, the key outlook for this particular trust is the outlook for interest rates and uh, what's going to happen to the yield curve and whether that will continue to increase profitability of banks in which they have, uh, I think, about 60% of their assets. So that will be one that I think will be uh, affected by any change in the outlook for interest rates as a result of what's happened, uh, as you say, in Ukraine. But 16 million, I mean, that's not a huge amount of money in the context of the uh, overall size of this trust, is it? I mean, certainly it's a lot larger now than it was <laughs> a couple of years ago. I mean, I've got the market cap of about £529 million at the moment. And look, as I mentioned, I think trying to raise money on a day when everyone's attention is quite clearly diverted by the breaking news, uh, I think is quite a hard ask. So the fact they've raised the best part of £17 million, uh, I think is not a bad achievement. 
Indeed, and presumably they may come back for more when things are settled down. Let's talk about some results now then, and we're going to kick off with one of the granddaddies of the investment trust sector. This is the Alliance Trust, which have produced some uh, final results for the year to the end of December. That's right. And they generated an NAV total return of 18.6% in that period. That compared with an increase of 19.6% for the MSCI All Country World Index. Uh, Share price total return a little bit behind, actually up 16.5%. And certainly during the year, the discount widened out a little bit. Average probably just short of 6%. And in fact, the buyback program was quite active. They bought back about 4% of their share capital last year. But that underperformance in 2021, that was attributed to the fact that they were uh, overweight mid and small cap stocks while being underweight some of the large US tech companies. So Apple and Tesla were mentioned in that regard. Of the 10 global stock pickers, so this is a uh, multi-manager type investment approach, Willis Towers, Watson are responsible overall. But of the 10 underlying global stock pickers, seven actually underperformed in the particular year where there was an emerging markets mandate as well, and that was fine, that outperformed. But since the appointment of Willis Towers, Watson at the start of April in 2017, certainly to the end of December last year, uh, Alliance Trust had underperformed uh, its benchmark, and that was running in about uh, 0.45% per annum. So that annualized underperformance about half a percent or so. And that compares with the target outperformance of 2% per annum over a rolling three-year period. So certainly it hasn't quite gone to plan so far. I mean, talking to Willis Towers Watson about this, they make the point that the market over that kind of five-year period has been very skewed to a small handful of stocks, invariably large cap stocks, invariably US tech stocks. And given that the the mandates they give to their underlying stock pickers are to kind of give them their best ideas, that naturally lends the fund or lends the portfolio away from those kind of big tech names and towards, as I mentioned, kind of more mid and small cap names. So that's the reason they suggest why they've seen that underperformance. However, there is some good news for shareholders. The, The board have decided to increase the dividend, it was actually up 32.5% in the period. It, the total dividend came in at 19 spot 05p, and that was uncovered. I think earnings per share were 15.5p, and it's this idea that the board are embracing enhanced dividend policy. The current dividend level, assuming that that's what's maintained, it gives them a yield of about 2, 2.4, 2.5% at the current share price. But it's worth noting that Alliance Trust, in common with most of the kind of global equity mandates, has, has been a little bit derated. So it probably finds itself on a 10% discount or so at the moment. We've talked about these vintage general global investment trusts before, the likes of Foreign and Colonial and, and Alliance, which have been around for many, many, many years. And they had this sort of big strategic review, as you say, five years ago or so. But it hasn't particularly worked, has it? I mean, I guess the board will be disappointed by the outcome of having gone for this approach. Uh, Okay, whatever the reason might be, and uh, I'm sure the explanation that has come from the uh, uh, Willis Towers Watson is certainly plausible, but it's actually what you pay your uh, managers to achieve. So what do you think the future for Alliance Trust is uh, from here? I think all the points you've made are very, very reasonable. And it's worth noting that with that performance target of 2% per annum, over a kind of annualized basis of a three-year rolling period, if they were to achieve that, then that would naturally, over the longer term, kind of put them in the something in the top half of their peer group, probably first or second quartile. And that's, I think, what the, the board is essentially looking for. It's that consistent performance track record. So something like an alliance trust, given the way it's set up, it's never likely to give you the returns that a Scottish mortgage investment trust gives you in any one year because you know that's going to have some, some fantastic years, as we saw in 2020, and it's going to have some disappointing years as well, one would assume, whereas alliance trust is a bit of an all-weather 
type investment approach. But you're right, you know, to date under Willis Towers Watson, that hasn't come through. I mean, the board, I think, is still very supportive, judging by the chair's comments, the statement with the annual reports. But I think in the meantime, the fund is seen at share buybacks at quite a high level. It has been derated. I mean, some of that but because of the market conditions at the moment, it's worth noting. But I think, you know, what works for Alliance Trust? Well, I think in common with some of the other names that you just alluded to, it's those kind of markets where you don't see quite narrow leadership. And the trouble with that kind of approach is that this period where we have seen growth companies do well and tech companies do well has become quite extended. So I think those more, as I called it, all-weather type approaches have naturally kind of fallen out of favour. Clearly, they're trying to do something about it in terms of attracting shareholder demand by putting an enhanced dividend policy in there. And it'd be interesting to see once that kind of beds in, whether that has the desired effect. But again, even on that, it's worth noting that where other investment trusts have gone down that route, invariably, the level where they've kind of landed at, so you've got the JP Morgan funds, a lot of their funds are kind of pitching around about a 4% enhanced dividend income. And with the best one in the world between 2 and 2.5%, two and which is where Alliance Trust at the moment, is that sufficient to kind of turn around demand for its shares? Are we likely to see it re-rated off the back of that alone? We'll find out, but I suspect that might be not sufficient, to be honest. Indeed. And so how does that find a discount? How does that compare to you know some of the other big names in the global sector? I think obviously Foreign Colonial, Monks, Brunner, uh, Witten, those sort of people. How does the rating compare? Yeah, so it's worth noting that the global peer group has been derated you know, over the recent weeks. So the weighted average discount in the global peer group is probably about 7% at the moment. That compares with an average of 3% over the previous 12 months. Within that, as I said, Alliance Trust on a 10% discount. That compares with its average of about 7 over the previous 12 months. You've got funds like Witten in there. They've been very active with their buybacks as well. That's a 9% discount at the moment, probably average near between 7 and 8 over the last year. You've got names such as Bankers. That's on a 5% discount. So that's been one of the higher rated global funds of that kind of more mainstream global funds, probably an average 1% discount or so. F&C. I mean, F&C, we're seeing the discount move out to probably 10 11%, and they've averaged 7.5% at the moment. So you can look at all these kind of more mainstream global investment trusts, and the discounts have widened out. There's no two ways about it. But even that's true of some of the more growth-focused funds. So Monks, for instance, in the Bailey Gifford stable, that's on a 9% discount at the moment. That's traded around NAV on average in the previous 12 months. And Scottish Mortgage, you know, we, we should really mention Scottish Mortgage, probably on about a 4 5% discount. But then that's averaged a 1% discount over the previous 12 months and actually has traded on a premium rating for quite a period of time during that year. So the big sector, the global sector, uh, interesting developments there. Let's move on and talk about some UK results now. And we'll kick off with Aberdeen, UK's Smaller Companies Growth Trust, ticker AUSC, which is managed by Harry Nimmo and his colleagues. How have they performed? So these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 12.4%, uh, and that compared to a rise of 3.1% for their reference benchmark, which is the NSC plus AIM X investment company. So significant outperformance. Not quite as good in share price terms. Share price total return came in at 10.1% as the discount widened out a little bit. But uh, you're right, Harry Nimmo, I think we can safely describe him as a veteran investment manager alongside his team, which includes Abby Glennie uh, involved in this one. And it's really about the kind of stock selection, clearly a focus on on more quality growth companies. So companies such as Safe Store, 
Canus Future, Impact Asset Management, Alpha Financial Markets all did well during this six-month period. Conversely, Gamma Communications, AO World, Victorian Plumbing, Gear for Music and Games Workshop struggled a little bit. But always a good account in the investment managers report on how they see the world. Okay, so we will move on and talk about uh, Law Debenture Corporation, ticker LWDB, an interesting hybrid investment trust. Tell us uh, what their results were like for the year to the 31st of December. Yeah, so another good set of results, actually. So NAV total return up 25.1%. That compares to a rise of 18.3% for the FTSE All Share Index. Not quite as strong in share price terms. That came in at 19.2%. But you're right to mention that it's a, a kind of hybrid investment trust. So there's an investment portfolio there, which is managed by James Henderson and Laura Fall of Janice Henderson. A very diversified portfolio, 149 holdings, I think, at the end of last year, of which 83% were UK-listed companies. Just to cover that off, they increased exposure to banks and other financials, so they kind of rode their economic recovery quite well, and they took some profits on some of their alternative energy stocks as well after strong performance. But the other element of the Lord Adventure story is this independent professional services business, and that seems to be uh, moving on, actually, getting a little bit of traction. So the profits before tax were up 9% year on year, and actually the valuation increased of 32%. So it was valued at £166 million at the end of 2021. That represented about 18% of net assets. And they made a significant acquisition during the period. They acquired a company secretarial services business from Eversheds, which is a legal practice, and they raised some capital to kind of cover the cost of that. But uh, why is that important? Because, well, the independent professional services business has historically provided about a third or so of uh, the revenue required for the dividends. So Historically, at least, there's been kind of greater dividend certainty because of the revenue that this independent business has produced within the structure. So what does that mean in terms of the dividend in this particular year? Well, it was up 5.5% to 29p. Uh, and certainly in, in yield terms, at least, I've got it on a historic basis about 3.8% at the moment. So we move on and talk about Murray Income Trust, ticker MUT, which we know we had the, that big merger some time ago now as the consolidation in the UK equity income sector continued. They've had some results out. What do the numbers look like there? So these were interim results for six months to the end of December. Um, they generated an NAV to return of 7.2% during that time, and that compared with a rise of 6.5% for the FTSE All Share. Did a little bit better in share price terms. That was 7.5% as the discount just narrowed slightly. So it's Charles Luke of Aberdeen who's responsible for this one. So um, the portfolio overweights in electricity and real estate. They certainly helped relative performance, whereas the detractors were being underweight oil and gas, uh, as well as being overweight medical equipment and services. But uh, it's worth keeping an eye on how they're doing in terms of their revenue earnings per share. And actually, they were up strongly on for the comparable period uh, up 31% and came in at 17.7%. Dividends totaling 16.5% uh, were declared, and that was in line with the previous half year. But the board expects to be able to continue the fund's record of 48 years of consecutive annual dividend growth. Indeed. And uh, how does this fund trade then? Uh, what can we deduce about the discount here? And I mean, it's a solid performer, has been a solid performer for a number of years. How does it compare to some of the others in the uh, UK equity income sector where we've seen a lot of uh, corporate activity, uh, well, certainly a couple of years ago? So I've got Murray Income on about a 6% discount or so at the moment. That compares with, with an average for the UK equity income peer group, probably between about 2 and 3%, so a little bit wider than the average for the peer group. The yield is, is coming in about 3.7% on a historic basis. We mentioned Law Debenture, that's also in the same peer group, and that's probably trading around NEV or so at the moment. 
Okay, so now let's move on and talk about some overseas results. We've got uh, Aberdeen China Investment Company. You might remind us about the origins of this one, ticker ACIC. They produced an annual report this and only to the 31st of October 2021. Yeah, so you're absolutely right to talk about the origins. So, in fact, just last year, this investment company was previously called Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Companies. In fact, that merged with another Aberdeen fund, Aberdeen New Tie, and came together to form the Aberdeen China Investment Company. So these are annual results for the year to the 31st of October, but actually the mandate, it all kind of only came together in November, so since the end of that period. In fact, I think they adopted the, the benchmark, the MSCI China, all shares index from the 1st of November. So they're slightly historic, these results, as results tend to be, but probably slightly relevant than where the portfolio is at the moment. So just to cover off the numbers, in that 12-month period to the end of October, they generated an NAV total return up 19.8%, and that compared with a rise of 10.7% for their kind of blended reference index. But as I say, huge amount of change where they are now. It's obviously focused on China, this particular fund. It's quite a concentrated portfolio between 30 and 60 stocks, and it's managed by Nicholas Yeo and Elizabeth Quick. And what's happened since November? What's the performance been like since the change in the mandate and investment policy? Have you got uh, some data on that? Well, I, I can tell you what it is over the last three months, and that's obviously been a tough period, I think, for most equity investors, but they're down 14% in NAV terms over three months, obviously an incredibly short period of time. But just to compare it with its immediate peers, so the Bailey Gifford Fund is down 17% in that period, the Fidelity Fund down 12% of the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund down 23%. So the MSCI China Index is down about 13%. So a tough period for Chinese equity investors. I think we talked about that at the time when they made the change. I guess what you can say is the Chinese market is a lot cheaper than it was when the uh, the Chinese trusts were all booming away uh, back in 2020, and which may have prompted their decision to change the mandate. Let's move on and talk about the Gulf Investment Fund, ticker GIF. We occasionally mention this one. It's uh, not a mainstream trust that we follow very closely, but uh, let's just quickly chalk off their results. Yep. So these were interim results for the six months to, again to the end of December. In that time, the NAV increased by 7.6%, that compared with a rise of 7.4% for their benchmark. The share price, not quite as good. Share price total return came in at 5.4% as the discount widened out a little. They also paid a final dividend, just short of 2.5 cents, which will be paid out, in fact, in March. Okay, let's move on and talk about the Mobius Investment Trust, ticker MMIT, which is managed by uh, the legendary Mark Mobius and uh, his colleague, Carlos Hardenberg, and used to manage Templeton Emerging Markets and uh, launched their own investment trust not so long ago. And it's been doing pretty well, I think. Well, this was certainly a very strong set of results, actually. So in the year to the end of November, that 12-month period, the NAV total return was up 44.9%. That compared with a very small rise for the MSCI Emerging Index. In share price terms, it did even better, actually up 50% as the shares moved from a 3% discount to a 1% premium. And in fact, they were able to issue some new shares as well. But it's quite a specialist investment portfolio. Obviously, it's emerging market equities, but quite concentrated. So in this particular 12-month period, the stocks that did well for them were e-memory technology, persistent systems, and APL Apollo, where obviously there were a number of detractors as well. So basically, at the end of November, it was a very concentrated portfolio. But very much the emphasis on high quality emerging market businesses with strong competitive advantages. That's what they try to do. 
but they take a bit of an ESG focus as well. This fund was launched in October 2018. So this is effectively the kind of three-year track record now that we've gone through that. And it's, uh, as I mentioned, it's really picked up just over the last year or so. And as so often with these cases, I mean, the initial couple of years, the market tends to have some doubts, wants to see confirmation that the new manager is doing what they what they are going to do. But once you get to the second, third year, then uh, and you can see the results coming through, you tend to get re-rated a little bit. But um, I mean, the share price performance has been pretty strong compared to the uh, emerging market sector, as you as you correctly say. Yeah, that's right. So they've been re-rated. So it's worth noting, if you look at the kind of the global emerging markets peer group, the average rating at the moment is about 12%. Whereas Mobius Investment Trust finds itself on a 3% discount. So it's held up pretty well. And in fact, if you look at that three-year NAV uh, kind of track record, they're coming in at 40%, 40%. That compares to a rise of 15% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And certainly it's ahead of everyone else in their peer group. So you've got the JP Morgan Fund, uh, which has also outperformed the general index, but that's up 31%. Templeton Emerging Markets, that's up 17%. So it's worth noting that the Mobius Fund is doing something quite different it's going to have a far more kind of mid-cap exposure, for example, much more concentrated portfolio. But certainly the numbers over the last year or so have been strong. Okay, so now we're going to talk about some specialist investment trusts. We're going to kick off with Herald Investment Trust, ticker HRI, which is a technology trust, essentially. What have they had to say? So uh, interesting set of results. This is the annual results for the 12 months to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 19%. Uh, that compared to a rise of 17.8% for the NSC plus AIM X Investment Companies Index. So that's effectively a UK small cap proxy and 15.2% increase for the Russell 2000 Technology Index. So that's how they compare their performance. They've outperformed on both measures on NAV terms at least. Share price, a total return came in at 11.6% as the discount widened out. But it's a very interesting portfolio. Katie Potts, hugely experienced uh, manager. I think she has been involved in this right from the outset. I think this was launched back in 1994. And a very, very diversified portfolio as well. I think they had 355 holdings at the end of January. But uh, certainly the exposure to the media sector did very well in this particular period. Um, I think they had about 13% in media. And actually that generated about a third of the returns. I think some of the software names were less successful, but it is a quite a stock-specific portfolio. About uh, 48% or so is in UK stocks, and then obviously they have a weighting to the US. That's about 22% uh, and emerging markets and, and so on and so forth. Okay, but presumably this has uh, also been caught up a little bit in the downdraft, if you call it that, uh, that's affected the other you know, technologies, investment trusts and, and growth trusts in general. And uh, it uh, trades on quite a big discount, does it not now? It does trade on uh, quite a big discount. I've got it on about a 19% discount or so at the moment. It's worth noting that all the technology specialist funds have been derated, so they're all on double-digit discounts. So if you look at Allianz Technology, that's on a 13% discount. Polar Cap Technology on a 12% discount. Augmentum Fintech, that's a bit different again, but that's equally on a discount. But if you look at the returns, you're right, they've all been hit to a greater or lesser extent recently, and then they've been derated as well. So actually, if you look at the three-month numbers, which again, very, very short time period. But if you look at the price performance and Herald's down 24% in that time, Allianz Technology down 28%. These are all share price total return numbers. Polycap down 20%. And they all compare with a, a decline of, say, the, the Dow Jones World Technology Index. That's of about 14%. But then, you know, you look over the longer term and the longer term records of many of these funds are still holding up incredibly well. So Herald's up 99%. 
in share price terms over a five-year period. Allianz Technology up 186%, Polar Cap Technology up 132%. So despite this sell-off that we've seen over the last three months, the long-term records are still looking very respectable. Yes, I mean, the gains come with the price in terms of volatility, and that's what you have to expect. Uh, do any of these technology trusts have buyback policy discount controls, uh, either formal or informal? If they do, would they not be coming into kind of territory where you might see them uh, begin to uh, to do something about the discount? Well, funnily enough, in this period that Herald's reporting about, they did buy some shares. They bought about a million shares, which equated to about £23 million, and that represented uh, 1.6% of their share capital and other investment company. So Augmentum won't have a discount control mechanism because essentially it's a private company, so it'd be very difficult for that to do. But it'd be interesting to see Allianz Technology and, and Polar Cap, what they would be minded to do. But I think just in general, where we see heightened periods of market volatility, and arguably that's what we've experienced this week, there will be some uh, investment companies who, who are minded to use their buyback powers. And obviously, there are a small number that do pursue a zero discount policy. But most will take a step back and often, even when they have explicit discount targets, the small print suggests that these are subject to normal market conditions, which is always highly subjective. But I would suggest that what we're seeing this week is not exactly normal market conditions. It's clearly heightened volatility. So it's not a surprise if, if some of the buyback programs take a step back at this stage. I mean, I did also notice that this one, uh, Harold, has a, a continuation vote coming up at the uh, 2022 AGM. But I mean, it's a large trust with uh, a long track record. So I don't suppose there's any question that the continuation vote will not be passed just because you had a, this one recent period of underperformance. Uh, I presume you would agree with me on that? Yeah, I think the market would see it as a surprise if there were any uh, mishaps in terms of its continuation vote. I mean, Katie Potts is, uh, I think, a highly respected investor, been doing this for a long time. Clearly, the discount's a disappointment, but then it has traded on a discount more often than not, frankly, over the last um, as many years as I've been following it. Okay, so let's talk about Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE, which has produced an annual report for the year to the 31st of December. And uh, they've obviously been, I think, in the right sector, at least. We know it's been a very strong period for energy. Uh, so how have they performed in that uh, particular context? Well, in NAV terms, very strongly. So the NAV was up about 100% in that 12-month period from $6.20 to $12.41. Share price terms, not quite as good, up 57%. And actually, this fund trades on quite a big discount. So I think the discount I've got on my screen at the moment is about 41%. But certainly it has tended to be out on a kind of 30 to 40 percent discount. But it's quite a specialist portfolio, this one. It's quite concentrated. It changed its investment focus back in July 2020. So it's all about energy transition and decarbonisation now. But at the same time, there are oil and gas legacy investments. So as I say, it's a very much a, a specialised investment company. Okay, so it might be worth mentioning this point. If you're a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, we have a interesting profile this week of uh, Canadian General Investments, which is not a trust that features very often in uh, talk about investment trusts. But uh, the reason we've done this profile is because actually the AIC published a list of the best performing investment trusts over the last five decades or even longer. And this uh, particular trust is uh, right up there at the top, only behind Polar Capital Technology and uh, Scottish Mortgage over the last 30 years. So this is something that's worth looking at. It's a, it is quite a specialist trust. And then we've also done a Q&A, an interview with Stuart Widdison, who manages the Odyssean Investment Trust, something we've talked about quite a lot and which features in our portfolios. And there's also some commentary about what's been happening in Ukraine and the possible impact on the markets. So let's move on then and talk about UIL Limited, ticker UTL. 
And uh, again, a trust about which doesn't feature very prominently in the media. What do they do and what do they have to say? So these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. In that time, there was an NAV total return. It was actually negative 9.9%. And in fact, the share price total return, that came down about 5.3% as the discount narrowed. And really, the story here is the largest holding in the portfolio, a company called Summers, represents about 39% of the NAV. Its largest holding is a company called Resimac, and that saw its share price fall by 23%. So it was a kind of knock-on effect. In fact, most of that NAV decline was a result of Resimac's weakness. Um, the revenue per share, that came in at 3.4p, but actually the dividend was maintained at 4p. Uh, and in fact, the company has some revenue reserves, remaining revenue reserves as well. So the full-year dividend target of 8p, that's forecast to be fully covered by earnings. But yeah, this is a more specialist investment company. It's managed by a chap called Charles Gillings. It's also quite geared as well. It's 64% geared. It has a number of uh, zero dividend preference shares. But I mean, its idea is it, it looks to invest in undervalued investments. That's the kind of the headline. So it's quite a specialist play on, on, on a subset of the market. Okay, let's move on and then talk about another interesting investment trust that uh, has been quite prominently in the news recently, and that is Chrysalis Investments, ticker CHRY, been in the news for a number of reasons. But uh, what uh, they had to say about their latest uh, NAV announcement? So this was a quarterly update. So their NAV at the end of December last year was actually down 5.6% from the end of September. Uh, and that's despite the fact that they saw positive contributions from Starling Bank, which represents about 19% of the portfolio, and a company called WeFox as well. So their largest holding, which is in a company called Klarna, and that represents 24% of net assets, that was uh, modestly reduced. And that was just on a comparable earnings basis. Uh, whereas a couple of their listed companies, so THG, PLC and Wise, uh, they also saw share price falls of 55% and 30% respectively. But as of the 18th of February, they were sitting on about £65 million worth of cash. That was about 4.5% of the portfolio. And uh, Nick Williamson and Richard Watts, who are the investment managers at Jupiter Asset Management, they said, and I quote, they do not see any fundamental deterioration in the growth prospects of the portfolio. Right. So but in terms of the, uh, the market performance of this one, it has been very volatile. Obviously, it's still quite a concentrated portfolio. And of course, there's still this uh, lingering issue of the... Uh, enormous performance fee that was paid uh, in respect of the earlier period and very recently since when the shares have been uh, have been tumbling so what can you tell us about the market for chrysalis at the moment no i think they're all fair points i mean so far in share price terms year to date chrysalis is down about 29% i mean i've got it trading on discount of about 27% to nav at the moment and if you remember it was only i think back in december when it last raised uh, some additional capital albeit that came in below target so it has been a real struggle so far this year to date I mean, you can understand why the market would look at some of the listed holdings within the portfolio, so THG and Wise. And as I mentioned, they've both been hit so far this year, but they're a relatively small part of the portfolio. THG, certainly at the end of December, was about 2% of the portfolio. Wise represented 4%. And really, it's the kind of the valuations of the, you know, Starling Bank, 19%, Klarna, 24%. These are private companies, so they're not being marked to market on a day-to-day -day basis. But clearly, the market would appear to be a little bit concerned about some of the underlying valuations. And uh, as I said, it has certainly struggled year to date. 
Okay, so let's talk about Pantheon International. Obviously, Chrysalis is in the so-called growth capital sector, which is not quite the same as the private equity sector, which is where the Pantheon International operates. It's been a good year for private equity. I think we can say that pretty safely. Where has Pantheon took a PIN? What have they had to say in their latest results? So these are interim results for the six months to the end of November, actually. Uh, And in that time, they've seen their NAV up 22.1%. And that compared to a rise of 6.1% for the MSCI World Index. In share price terms, also quite a strong period, up 17.6%. But it's a decent-sized portfolio, this one. Um, the net assets at the end of November came in at uh, just short of $2.3 billion. And it's also worth noting that you know, we talk about private equity, we talk about what a strong year private equity in general had in 2021. Well, certainly Pantheon seemed to have kind of captured that in terms of the realizations and the uplifts that they saw. So in terms of the weighted average uplift from fully realized exits in that six-month period, that came in at 43%, while the average cost multiple on exit realizations came in at 3.3 times. Now, both those numbers are much higher than what you'd normally expect to see from private equity. So even the kind of most successful names, certainly two, two and a half times multiples on exit realizations, probably more the order of the day. So that second half of 2021 was a particularly strong period for these private equity portfolios that were able to realize their investments during that time. So distributions totaled just short of about 200 million, which represented about 24% of the opening portfolio. They also made some new investments as well, but there was a net cash inflow of 121 million pounds. I think the other thing to kind of draw out from the Pantheon International results is that although we and probably the market looks at this as a kind of fund of funds, and it's certainly quite diversified private equity exposure, Increasingly now, they are focused on co-investments or or what they call single asset secondaries. So it's quite focused. So it's still a very diversified underlying portfolio, but they are selectively backing co-investments rather than just making what's called primary commitments to new funds. And then the money gets drawn down over a period of time. But at the end of that period, to the end of November, they were sitting on liquid resources of about £220 million that equated to just under 10% of net assets. So certainly at that stage, the balance sheet was looking strong. We do know that uh, Pantheon is one of these uh, private equity trusts that's been trying to, says it's trying to make an effort to reduce the discount at which its shares trade. But it doesn't appear to have had much success with that so far. They're still on a pretty big discount. But equally, of course, we don't know what's happened to the NAVs. You know, we're about three months on from the date of the last NAV. Uh, But private equity trusts are not immune from the kind of movements we've seen in uh, public equity markets. So there's no certainty that the NAV will be uh, higher the next time they uh, come to report it. Would that be a fair summary or not? Yeah, that's a very good point. So if you look at the actual underlying valuations in the Pantheon portfolio, not all of them by any means, but quite a lot, probably the majority will be as at the 30th of September. So basically Q3 valuation points, and that'll be true for all the private equity funds at the moment. So we're still waiting to get genuine valuations at the end of 2021. And really, one of the questions we have is when those valuations come through from the underlying private equity managers is, will they take into account what has been seen subsequently? So the derating in particularly growth companies in on the public markets, you know, will they be reflected in some of those valuations? So there is a lag. You're absolutely right. But if you look at those kind of private equity fund of fund names, then the average discount at the moment is 28%, albeit they're on quite old NAVs. But we've got Pantheon on about a 29% discount at the moment. Okay, so let's now talk about Seraphim Space Investment Trust. 
ticker SSIT, which is a recent IPO and one which has caught people's attention because of the nature of what it does. It always sounds very exciting to be investing in space. So what have they had to say? So these were interim results from uh, basically their incorporation back in uh, May to the end of December, the end of last year. So their NAV was up 6.8% during that period. In share price terms, a lot better, actually up 25.4%, though it's worth noting that actually the share price has, has come down subsequently. But essentially, there was an 11% increase in the fair value of the portfolio that uh, was driven by a quoted holding in a company called Arquit Quantum that represented about 19% of the NAV. So that really pushed the NAV on. I mean, as you might expect, given that this is the early stage of this company, there's a lot of portfolio activity and three private companies were marked up after funding rounds. Though on the other side, full provisions were made against two early stage companies and those provisions total about 1.9 million. So there's an element of risk clearly about what they're doing, particularly on those early stage companies, and they've made that quite clear. I mean, at the end of December, the portfolio was valued at £183 million and comprised 21 companies. But again, at that stage, they were sitting on cash about £70 million, so 28% of net assets. But they're pretty confident, the investment team, that they can deploy the IPO proceeds fully within six to 12 months of IPO, so by the mid part of 2022. So this one was quite popular when it came to the market. It had a kind of early surge went to quite a big premium, but that's uh, pretty much eroded now, I think, and it's uh, back trading around the issue price. Would that be about right? Yeah, so um, I've got it on my screen at the moment at about 109p or so. And yeah, in share price terms, um, it's come off about 13% year to date. So on a premium still, but not quite the level it was at the at the start of this year. Okay, so now we've got to quickly move on and cover some infrastructure and renewable energy trusts. They've all been uh, producing some results. We've got three of them, I think, producing results, or four indeed. So we're going to quickly race through these. Bluefield Solar Income Fund, ticker BSIF. They've had half-year results to the 31st of December. Yeah, and uh, a good set of results. Actually, NAV total return up 9.6%, and that's really a reflection of inflation and uh, power price increases. And that's a familiar story across all these renewable energy infrastructure names. Uh, the dividend target for the financial year to 30th of June 2022 um, is not less than 8.16p, and that's up from 8p in the previous financial year. Okay, and I listened to a presentation by uh, the team there, and they sounded very positive about the future, which, of course, most investment trust managers are, but uh, they seem to have a pretty good case because this uh, particular trust has derated quite significantly, has it not, over time, and is offering a pretty healthy yield at the moment. Yeah, so its average premium rating over the previous 12 months is about 8%. I've got it on my screen on about a 1% premium or so at the moment. So you're right, it has been derated. And yet the yield on a historic basis is coming in about 6.6%. So let's uh, move on and talk about Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust. This is ticker D-O-R-E, doing something rather different, obviously, but in the same broad general space. Uh, what have they had to say about their performance? So they didn't give an NAV update, but they're kind of a general trading update. And basically, uh, they've declared a dividend of one spot two five p for the final quarter of last year, that takes their total dividends to date to 3.5p, and that's in line with their updated guidance and ahead of their initial 3p target. So it's worth mentioning this one only came to the market back in December 2020. In terms of the kind of underlying operational story, well, it's all looking pretty positive, actually. So the total revenue for the final quarter of last year was 44% ahead of budget, and that was a reflection of the fact that we Obviously, we're seeing higher power prices and obviously electricity generation was 13% above expectations. 
Okay, and then we'll talk about Greencoat UK Wind, along with Bluefield Solar, one of the uh, original renewable energy trusts to come to the market. It's been around for quite a few years now, and they've had some annual results uh, to the 31st of December again. Yeah, that's right. And again, a very good set of results for, for Greencoat UK Wind. They delivered a total return of 15.4% in that 12-month period. And that was despite the fact that energy generation was actually 20% below budget. So I think we talked last week as the window frame rattled away about how wind was a real issue in 2021. You could see that in terms of that energy generation, 20% below budget. However, Power prices were significantly above budget, and, and that obviously is a reflection of higher gas prices in the second half of last year. As a result of that, dividends, uh, which totaled 7.18p, were 1.9 times covered. And in fact, the board are obviously feeling pretty confident because their dividend target for 2022 has increased to 7.72p. And that's in line with RPI of 7.5%. In fact, this is one of the few kind of remaining uh, renewable energy infrastructure funds that still commit to that dividend increase in line with the RPI links. So that's what they're looking to deliver. It's also worth just noting as well that they're gearing in terms of gross asset value. That came in at 23%. So that's probably on the lower side of what it has been historically. So one assumes that there is a kind of scope for further investments here. And this one has also derated somewhat, but it was uh, on a very big premium for quite a long time. So uh, what do you have that uh, looking at at the moment? Yeah, I've got it on about an 8% premium. I'm not too far off what it's averaged over the previous 12 months, but you know, at some stages it's been as high as 15%, but yielding 5% on a historic uh, basis. Okay, so some difference in the valuation on there with the solar funds. Uh, let's move on finally and talk about VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, ticker GSEO. This, again, is another, well, relative newcomer to the sector, I think. What do they have to say? Yeah, so this is a quarterly update for the final three-month period of last year. Their NAV was up 4.2% in that time, and that was a reflection of what was going on in terms of the US terminal storage assets market. Apparently, there'd been some improved contract terms, and basically, this resulted in a 33% increase in project revenues. But you're right, it's a relatively recent launch, just about a year or so ago, actually, February 2021, this came to the market. So that, I think, brings us to the end. There's a couple of property uh, updates that we'll uh, maybe pick up next week. It's been quite a, a full-on week for Investment Trust announcements, as we said, and, of course, this huge overhang of what's happening in Ukraine, and uh, which is going to have at least some impact on the markets as we go forward. That's all we have time for this week. And uh, as I say, things could move quite a lot. We're still only 24 hours or so into the fallout from the Ukraine invasion by Russia. But no doubt next week we'll have a, a, another chance to take a look at that and what the likely longer term implications are. So thank you, Simon, for this week's contribution. And we'll look forward to speaking next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.